Anne rightly pointed out before the service that uh, the lectionary reading uh, nicely skirts the matter of uh, slavery in the way it uh, designates the reading, because just before the passage that we've read today, there is a mention of slavery. And in fact, the instruction about uh, doing the right thing and uh, responding even though you've done the right thing if you get punished and so forth, is about slavery. So that's a bit tricky and we're not going there today. I wanted to look more particularly at this idea of following Jesus in the particular thing that this passage points out. Because, of course, there's many reasons why, or many aspects of Jesus we might think are worthy of our following. Uh, His capacity to respond to those who challenged him with very thoughtful and confronting ideas and responses the way he noticed people who live on the fringes, the way he brought healing to everybody around him and his compassion and grace, all worth our following. But Peter points to something that is summed up in verse 23. He says, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. See, Jesus didn't respond to people in a reciprocal manner. He looked to the one who was above the crowd. Now, Ian's going to put up a little picture here because there's something to note about the fact that Jesus didn't respond reciprocally to others, and that is how unnatural that is. Because as I've highlighted here before, Humans are naturally reciprocal in our behaviour towards one another. And whether it's children engaged in name-calling or tongue-poking out, and you only have to have two kids to know how that works, or the tit-for-tat sparring between political leaders or even nations, or the disposition to be nice to someone who is nice towards us. Humans tend to reflect back what we see coming toward us. Um, Some people take this to an extreme and are prone to be virtually different people depending on the group that they happen to be with and maybe you know some people like that as well. But our capacity to mimic is also key to our relatively rapid development as human beings and our technological development and our scientific development and all the things that we've managed to do because we learn from one another, we copy and we build on it and so forth. The other other thing here is that Jesus' um, capacity not to be reciprocal, to not mirror back, kind of messes with our sense of justice as well. At a more profound philosophical level, our sense of justice is built on a sophisticated model of tit-for-tat as well. Justice is supposed to be about people getting what they deserve. If one person does the wrong thing, we understand the justice system will kind of punish them Commensurately, There is a reciprocality or reciprocity to this system. It's society's way of mirroring back the impact of particular people's behaviours and so kind of attempt to bring them into line. And you might well quote from Exodus or Leviticus, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth because that's Levitical law. And broadly speaking, that's the foundations of our legal thinking as well. A system designed to curtail unbridled violence or vengeance, to limit harm, but undeniably reciprocal nonetheless. 
Rather than being reciprocal and giving back to people uh, as they give to him, Jesus does something different. He remains uh, firmly focused on the judge who judges righteously. As he himself said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. That's from John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus did not take his cues from his social circumstances. He didn't mirror back the way that he was treated and treat people like that. He responded in a manner consistent with his Father's love, even when that wasn't the way people were treating him. His Father's love for him and his Father's love for all people was his guiding principle. To love those who are treating you poorly, you really have to trust in the Father's love. And he says that he was, or Peter says Jesus entrusted himself to the ultimate judge, the judge who judges righteously. Um, When we are often concerned about being judged, we're concerned about um, being found in breach of the rules of society. I know as the different rules change around social distancing and what we're allowed to do, and you know, Robin mentioning a moment ago, are we allowed to get together with that many people? What if the police come? Oh dear, that wouldn't be a problem and that kind of thing. So whether it's a formal process of a judge in a court regarding legislated laws, or even just the informal process of individuals in our peer group or our our, our local community uh, deciding that we fall outside of what they deem to be acceptable, there are all sorts of judgments being made by all sorts of people all of the time. Um, picture of Jerry Springer there. Did anyone ever see Jerry Springer on American TV? Uh, he, he hosted a program that was a form of stave, stage-managed cage fight. I would say. I didn't ever see it on TV. I heard about it and I I looked it up on YouTube. Don't do that. It's not edifying. (laughs) But there would be two aggrieved parties brought on to live... live, No, I don't think it was live television, but onto the the studio floor. And um, famously, they would often devolve. They'd be slanging matches of words and then there'd be physical violence. They would actually attack each other. And at the end, Springer himself would sit there and reflect on the meaning of this interaction as if he were some kind of wise person making a judgment about human behaviour. Now, Springer is a grotesque example, but it does point to how warped our own sense of judgment can become at times. Uh, But even for our most highly trained and experienced court judges... They are relying on the skills of those who are telling them the stories in the court of law from either side. So, you know, skilled barristers perhaps, or maybe not so skilled barristers. Many details are omitted in those storytellings. Backstories are often unknown or overlooked or hidden for particular reasons. Some details are misremembered. There are clever attempts at deception going on. Motives are guessed at, characters are assessed, and we hope to God that the system gets it right. But we know, we know it doesn't always. So Jesus knew that there was one judge who would get it right. 
There was only one judge truly capable of understanding all the relevant data and seeing it, and that is the judge that Jesus entrusted himself to, the Father. This was in fact all Jesus could do in a sense because his trial was politically and religiously charged and rigged. The established powers had predetermined the outcome of what should happen to him and neither truth nor justice was going to get in the way of that predetermined outcome. But what does it mean to trust God when the systems of authority or power are arranged against you? It means explaining the truth when the truth will be listened to and accepting with dignity that there is no point when there is no point. And that's what Jesus did. But what he did do was he bore our sin in his body. And when I first heard this story of Jesus bearing our sin in his body, um, it was given to me as a theological description of some kind in which there was this notional transfer of my sin into Jesus' body and he died so the sin was gone. And certainly the story is told in that way and that's an interesting way to engage the ideas. It's a kind of invisible, otherworldly transaction that is not tangible to us and you simply have to believe that it is so. And I think that's useful. But there's a far more straightforward and tangible way of understanding this idea as well because Jesus bore our sin in his body on the cross because it was our sin that inflicted the wounds on his body and hung him up on the cross. It was our default way of handling conflict and threat resulting in the most vulnerable, the one who least deserved it, getting beaten and scourged and murdered. The fact that Jesus was beaten and scourged and murdered actually had nothing to do with who he was as a person. He was a good person, almost universally acclaimed as such, even by those who were trying him. He didn't deserve the treatment that he got. It was the people and the systems they had designed that were around Jesus that did that stuff. And it was Jesus' unwillingness to fight or flee or deflect that meant he was, it was inevitable that he would be consumed by the violence of those people and systems. It's actually our destructive ways that get shown up. And um, our sin becomes clearly evident at that moment. I remember when Joe and I were first married years and years ago and we were going to meet some friends for dinner. It was a rainy night in Mossman and we were cruising slowly down a back street to try and find a place to park the car and suddenly across the headlights I saw something fall and the car went and I went, ooh, we just ran over something and I, I pulled up and looked back and there was something on the ground and I thought, I don't know what that was, I better go back and in a, a tragic, horrific, comedic moment I backed the car back over whatever it was and it turned out to be a possum that had on the stormy night, fallen out of the tree and uh, I, I think probably in the end mercifully killed it. Uh, I think after the first running over it probably wasn't in good shape and after the second one it didn't matter. But I felt terrible. I had inadvertently killed an innocent animal. There was nothing I could have done but even so I felt terrible. I didn't want to kill a beautiful little possum and I know some of you have them in your roof and you think, no, you should have killed it. But uh, 
It made me hypervigilant as I drove from that point. I thought, what if it had been a person? What if someone had suddenly run out in front of me? And so that evening and from then on for a long, long time, and I've probably lost the urgency with which it was with me straight afterwards, I became really very careful as I drove. And I think there's a similar dynamic that can happen here as we realise and take responsibility for the fact that the scourge of Jesus' body the hanging of him on the cross, his murder was as a result of our sin. And as we look at that, we might go, that's not good. I don't want to be responsible for that. And so I want to change the way that I do life as a result. There in Jesus' body it becomes graphically evident See, the idea of sin is a lot easier to live with. You know, you're sinful or people think it's a moral thing or something like that. But when you're confronted with a brutalised body of an innocent and good man, it's disturbing to the core. See, this is where repentance comes in, I think. There is an opportunity to see the impact of our actions and decide that we don't want to continue doing life in the way that brings that kind of thing about. Repentance is not about getting a fresh set of instructions and seeking to obey them. It is about realising the way that we live does have impacts and starting to see them because we're so good at hiding those impacts from ourselves. If we start to see how we've been doing life and how that has affected other people, we might start to deeply desire to change. And I think seeing the impact of our thoughts and words and actions is a very powerful motivator for that change. This is why why Jesus becomes our shepherd. He is the one who would never hurt anyone and who we hurt when we go off and live without regard for others. As we look at him as our shepherd, he guides us in his loving and self giving ways, ways that will never hurt anyone, such that we never need regret the choices that we make or the actions that we do. I believe this is the way to the richest, fullest life. So let us pray.